So may these words of mine be in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> For many years, I taught a course on preaching. And one of the questions I was most often asked was this, where do you get your ideas? And my reply was always the same. I get my ideas from the Bible, from my life experience, and from the streets of Ilkeston, where I was working. So, for this talk on Daniel today, I'm going to follow my own advice. I'm going to talk from the Bible about Antiochus Epiphanes. I'm going to talk from my own experience about Gladys Stevens, my first primary head teacher. And I'm also going to talk about my experience sitting on the number six bus from town to West Bridgeford. But let's start with Daniel. I'm going to say something perhaps that will surprise you. It may even initially shock you. The book of Daniel is not what it seems. The book of Daniel is not what it seems. And if you take it at face value, you will almost certainly misunderstand it. The book of Daniel really comes in two parts. The first six chapters talk about the adventures of young Jewish men in the Babylonian court. And the second part, chapters 7 to 12, purport to be a series of prophecies beginning from the time of the Babylonian exile. If you take it at face value, you will misunderstand it. Actually, what is happening is this. Though the book seems to be set in Babylonian times and to be dated in the 590s BC, actually, the book was written 400 or so years later, about 165 BC, and it was written in Jerusalem. The setting is Babylon, the place of writing, Jerusalem. The time that's being written about, the 590s BC, the time when it was written, 165 BC. Understand these facts and you can understand the book of Daniel. Ignore them and you will misunderstand them. The book of Daniel is a piece of resistance literature. It is a tract for the times. So the simple question is this. Let's begin with the question. What was happening in Palestine to the Jewish people in the 160s that caused the writer of the book of Daniel to write the book? That's the question. Before I begin to answer it, I want to go to Gladys Stevens. Gladys Stevens, my primary school headmistress. I owe her so much. First, she gave me the most fantastic educational foundation. But secondly, it was through her that I got the first glimpse of the truth of the Christian faith. For in the 1950s, in Manchester, there was a school assembly every day. 
I heard a Bible passage. I learnt the collect for the week. And I sang hymns. If you're my sort of age, you may remember. Onward Christian soldiers. When a knight won his spurs in the stories of old. And I wonder if you remember from Greenland's icy mountains, from India's coral strand. You notice, we don't sing that hymn anymore. Lee asked me, would I like a hymn to go with my talk? I was so tempted to choose from Greenland's icy mountains, but I refrained. Let me tell you why. If I had chosen this, This is what I would ask you to sing. From Greenland's icy mountains, from India's coral strand, sunny fountains roll down their golden sand. From many an ancient river, from many a palmy plain. Listen. They call us to deliver their land from error's chain. What though the spicy breezes blow all soft or Ceylon's isle, though every prospect pleases and only man is vile, in vain with lavish kindness the gifts of God are strewn, the heathen in his blindness bows down to wood and stone. Can we, whose souls are lighted with wisdom from on high, Can we, to men benighted, the lamp of life deny? I find it hard to read that without cringing with embarrassment. There is a cultural and a religious imperialism going on here. And that's one of the reasons we no longer sing it. But back now to the book of Daniel. Please keep those words in mind. We need a bit of history for cultural and religious imperialism did not begin in Victorian England. It's an age-long thing. I want to take you back to Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great who conquered Greece Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Egypt, Iran, Afghanistan, who was into India itself when his men forced him to turn back. This huge empire rivaling the British Empire and something similar happened. Alexander felt he needed to benefits of Greek civilization to all the he ruled. Greek, rather like English today, became the language spoken across the world. The institutions of the Greek city-state, the gymnasium, the theater, the meeting of the assembly, all this became the norm across the empire. And it seemed that this was an irresistible pressure. Everywhere the empire extended, this was modern, 
This was with it. This was up to date. And there was such pressure on people to abandon their old customs and their old-fashioned ideas. When Alexander died, his empire divided between his generals. We We need to know just two generals. There was the Seleucid Empire in Asia, and there was the Ptolemaic Empire in Egypt. And squashed between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies was Palestine and the Jewish people. It was a bone of contention between the empires. But whoever was at the time ruling it, pressured, pressured, pressured to have Hellenistic ideas, to do away with old-fashioned ideas. And it comes to a crunch, 168 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian ruler, marches into Palestine and sets about incorporating it once and for all into his empire. He wants to assimilate the people. He says three things. There is to be no circumcision of Jewish male children. Kosher foods are to be banned. The test of loyalty will be eating pork. And the Sabbath is no longer to be observed. Can you see what he's doing? The boundary markers of the Jewish faith, the things that made them distinct, the things that kept them being swallowed up amongst the other peoples, he wanted to sweep away. And as if that was not bad enough, the crunch comes, 165 BC. Antiochus captures Jerusalem, goes into the temple there, and offers swine, pigs, on all the altars, thereby desecrating them. And worst of all, he sets up a statue of himself as a god in the temple in Jerusalem. The abomination of desolation. It seemed that the whole future of the Jewish people was at stake. How were they to react in this situation? Well, let me give you four broad reactions. The first was, well, it was the leads of the temple, the high priests. They decided, let's side with the ruling power. Let's assimilate. This is civilization. This is modern. This is the way we should go. And the names of two of the high priests at the time, Jason and Menelaus, good Jewish names. Not a bit of it. They were Greeks. But if you didn't want to assimilate, the other reaction was, let's head off into the desert. Let's have a simple, pure keeping of the faith. And people did this. And they were the people who wrote the dead Sea Scrolls. But in between, there were two other groups. There was one group that decided to resist Antiochus 
with military might. They called themselves freedom fighters. Antiochus called them terrorists. They wanted to throw Antiochus out by force of arms. But there was a fourth group. The fourth group called themselves the Hasidim, the pious ones. And it was to the pious ones that the writer of the book of Daniel belonged. What he said to them was this, keep the faith. Do not abandon what God has shown us. Just wait and God will intervene and will bring in his everlasting kingdom. That's what was happening. But that was 165 BC. We live in 2013 AD. You might say, Alan, that is fascinating. I didn't know that. But what's it got to do with my life? Let me suggest some things it has to do with your life. You see, Boundary markers aren't there in the Christian faith the same way they are in the Jewish faith. Circumcision, read St. Paul, he says you don't need to be circumcised to be a Christian. Kosher food, read the Acts of the Apostles, kosher food is more or less abolished within Christianity and disappears very quickly. The Sabbath day, well that was superseded. Because Christians met on Sunday, the weekly celebration of Jesus' resurrection. So what's Daniel got to do with us? If I were a Muslim, it would be obvious what it's got to do with us. For rightly or wrongly, Muslims see themselves in our society as under pressure. And so they have boundaries. Make sure women are appropriately covered. Only eat meat that is halal. And let's have Sharia law so we can keep our identity. You can understand it, you may not agree with it, but that's where they're coming from. But we're not Muslims, we are Christians. What is the distinguishing mark or marks of being a Christian? Let me suggest two things, both present in church. And the first begins over there. Did you notice in Daniel chapter 1 that the people were given new names? As a Christian, we are given a new name. At the font... At the place of our entry into the church, words like this are said. Alan, Christ claims you as his own. Receive the sign of cross, the sign of Christ. Do not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified and fight valiantly under his banner against sin, the flesh and the world and continue 
his faithful soldier and servant to the end of your life. You see, if you're a Christian, you have the sign of Christ. You're not an orphan. You belong to God's forever family. You have a new identity, and it is a new identity that is meant to shape how you live. So first the font, and secondly, the Eucharist. The service we celebrate today, we come together as God's family, around God's table, to be fed by him, and then to be commissioned. I wonder if you ever thought, at the end of every communion service, we receive our orders. The priest says, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And as my army friends would say, that is not a request, that is a command. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And we say, thanks be to God. Amen. A Christian is someone who Christ has claimed for his own and whom he commissioned to live for himself, to live for God. It would be lovely to sit down there, to say amen and to leave it. But I'm not going to. What does it mean to be sent out at the end of this service to love and serve the Lord. You've probably heard the saying, when the service ends, the service begins. What does it mean for us, here in St. Giles, here in 2013, to be sent out in the name of Christ to love and serve the Lord? We've had Antiochus, We've had Gladys Stevens. And now we come to my ride on the number six bus. I'd been reading recently how Nottingham is the poorest city in the country. I'd been reading about the activities of the loan sharks and the payday lenders in the meadows. And I'd been looking up figures on the Church Urban Fund's website regarding child poverty and qualifications in Clifton. Let me give you some figures. Child poverty in West Bridgeford, 6%. Child poverty in Clifton, 31%. The number of people in West Bridgeford who have no formal qualifications, 14%. The number of people in Clifton who have no formal qualifications, 46%. These things have been on my mind. And I was on the number six bus and I came back through the meadows. And I tried to pray and imagine if most of my meals were beans on toast because that was what I had money to live on. I tried to imagine myself in Clifton in that situation. 
the bus quickly went through the meadows, over Trent Bridge, and down Central Avenue. And there I found the cafes, the restaurants, the coffee houses, crammed, jammed, people overflowing onto the street. And it hit me in a way it has never hit me before. The contrast between Clifton and the Meadows, three miles away from us, and West Bridgeford. I'm generalizing, of course, but I recognize, as I've never recognized before, we have so much income, most of us, compared with those who are very near neighbors. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you come to church on Sunday, that you read your Bibles. doesn't say that. By this shall all men know you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. I don't often say I sensed God speaking to me, but I did so powerfully. And I began to say, Alan, I have so much. And within a short distance of where I live, there are people who have nothing like as much. If I am a Christian, if Christ has claimed me for his own, if I bear his name, if I dare to come to church and to be sent out to love and serve the Lord, what am I going to do about it? And I don't think that's just a question for me. I think that's a question for our church. What are we going to do about it? Do we worship Sunday by Sunday, forgetting Clifton, forgetting the meadows? Or do we in some way begin to engage with them? I'd like to give you a simple way to engage with them. The diocese to which we belong, Sutherland Nottingham, is challenging people. I talked about payday loans. I talked about loan sharks. There is what's called a credit union made up of members. Credit union exists to provide saving opportunity for those who normal banks won't touch and to make small loans to people banks will not lend money to. And the diocese, our diocese, has challenged a hundred people to lend, please note, not give, to lend a hundred pounds to the Nottingham Credit Union for one year. And that money would make a huge difference to people living on the poverty line in our own city. If you'd like to know more, speak to me. That's a practical way we can engage in our city just lending money in a way we wouldn't perhaps normally do. Or maybe, as a church, we want to think about our relations with Clifton and the Meadows. Let me say something to you. 
This is probably out of turn, but I'm going to say it anyway. Each summer, we run a holiday club in this church. It's a fabulous activity. It is much appreciated. I wonder whether there are holiday clubs in Clifton. I wonder whether there's a holiday club in the meadows. There may be. I do not know. But I do know Child poverty in those places is five and six times greater than West Bridgeford. I do know the leadership potential of this church is far greater than might be available in Clifton or the Meadows. Let's think about these things. Let's pray about these things. Daniel chapter 1 is not just about... 165 BC. How do we be a Christian in a secular society? How will people recognize that we put our faith where our mouth is? Are we just going to be like our neighbors, living their lifestyle, driving their cars, living in their house, going to the normal children's activities? Are we going to be recognizably different in the way we live? Is this church just going to be a gathering of nice people? Or is it going to be a powerhouse that God can use by his spirit to impact the city in which he's put us? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it not only spoke, but that it speaks. Help us to hear what you might be saying through it. And help us as those whom you have claimed as your own to go today in peace, to love and serve the Lord.